Welcome to Babble of a Bruise, deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice for Verkin. I've got Gumby. Hey, what's up? I've got Zachariah. Yo. And I've got Bryson. Hello. We're going to be going over The Conjuring and the Warrens tonight to find out <laughs> what is fact, what is fiction. Stay tuned. To start the night out, though, we're going to be doing Heavy Seas R.I.P. Current. R.I.P. Current is sure to be a fruity and refreshing favorite. Waves of raspberry and black currant blend together to give this beer its sweet and bright juiciness. R.I.P. Current is the perfect fruit ale for any time of the year. It has an ABV of 4.5, and it didn't list its IBU. Oh, sneaky. Oh, man, look at that. It has a really velvety overtone to it. That's pretty. As tradition would hold, I take my first sip out of the can. Ooh, look at all that. head. This thing is way heady, like way, way heady. This thing this thing has enough to have its own mop top. <laughs> <laughs> but it has a very pleasant aroma. Almost flowery, to tell it you the truth. Yeah, it's it flowery. Uh, it's, it's very fragrant. Yeah. Very. I, I, right from the get-go, you can smell the current. Mm, not bad. So it has a slightly sweet overtone, um, but it's refreshing. Very refreshing. Definitely more of a ale slash lagerish flavor, mm-hmm. but uh, I like it. It's good. Very good for the summer. Yeah. I don't know if I'd call it a rip current, more like. But okay. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's it's not overly sweet, which is good because I don't usually favor overly sweet things unless it has a huge theme. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's so. just enough body in it to Absolutely. keep me hanging on. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll judge this against the other one later tonight. Mm-hmm. We'll find out which one is the winner. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else drinking tonight? Uh, I've got the uh, old classic Miller Lite. Uh, nice. Uh, <laughs> Nothing's more American, right? Yeah. <laughs> Fourth of July is coming up, guys. That's right. That's Stars right. and stripes. <laughs> How about you, Zach? Not tonight, sadly. <gasps> no Rasputin, or isn't that what you usually drink? Or yeah, it's usually what I drink. My heart goes out to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll jump right into it, Bryson. Who are you? Well, uh, philosophy geek, theology geek, uh, Bible geek, um, and I've been an active paranormal researcher for about 15 years. And uh, yeah, I guess I met you and Zechariah, what, about five years ago, five, six years ago on the Naked Bible group. Sounds about right. Oh, really? It's been that long. Before it turned into what it is today back in the good old days <laughs> be back when they were doing research yeah everyone everyone was doing research and everyone was halfway thinking rationally and it hadn't been invaded by art bell fans <laughs> thank god the actual researchers split off into their own group now oh legit legit <laughs> yeah. um that's it was a good time he's also part of our research magi group so 
Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. Yep, yep. Nothing but the best. <laughs> that's like the really. Ex- that's like Freemasonry right there. It's really exclusive. <laughs> yeah, talk about secret societies. So going into that, just touching on the philosophy, where do you veer more? What is your? Who are your favorite philosophers? Oh boy, I'm going to be convicted by association now. Uh, I am very interested in uh, Slavoj Žižek and Elaine Badu. I saw at least one of those coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a few others, and I'm 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 a big fan of quite a few of them. Uh, but this is sort of you know it's a pathway, so this is sort of where I've landed and where I focus my my spare time that I can get. And, uh, yeah, really into that at that point, at at this point. And, uh, yeah. So most of our audience is not going to be familiar. Kind of background that thought process a little bit, because every philosophical construct kind of has its own ideologies. um, They're a little bit complex, but to give... I guess the best thing I can say about them is that this sort of Zizekian Badu project is to sort of find a way to counteract postmodernism through universal experience. Okay. Mm. I and like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really refreshing to be honest. And that's sort of their whole project. And I like Badu is very much into love as a universal experience that roots itself in the differences between people as opposed to their similarities. And then the universality comes in that experience of love. And uh, Zizek's a lot the same way on that topic. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what I'm interested in with those people. I love it. That's really cool. I love it. So, moving on, what's your favorite Conjuring movie? Well, Conjuring Universe movie, I should say. I would say, (laughs) I think I like the original the best. I think that's the one that we were talking about before the show, about how it's much more focused on the ambiance and the Mm -hmm. buildup. And all that, because, you know, you don't in that movie, you don't see anything real big happen till near the end. It's all sort of slow. Yeah. You know, and I to me as an investigator, I mean, it's still exaggerated, but that movie kind of captures the essence of the the subtlety and the strangeness of we, real investigations. OK. And so that's probably my favorite one. OK. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Yeah. The buildup is awesome. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> Which might background a little bit for our audience. So yeah. um, I know that Ed Warren, for example, claims that he grew up in a haunted house, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that there was a uh, there was a uh, a spirit lady that would that he would see. So that yes. was kind of his background and how he started realizing that he could see things that others couldn't see. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's. For most people that get into the paranormal stuff, that's a pretty common theme. Uh, it's the rarity is is people that haven't had any prior experience getting into it. But you'll you know there's a lot there's a lot in that where the quest for truth is generally brought on by having witnessed something and then not being believed. Yeah. So it kind of sets you off on this quest to find that truth to finally be accepted and whatnot. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I haven't had any direct interactions with spirits per se. I I've seen a few things, but no, like I haven't seen ghosts floating around or demons right. tap, demons tapping me on the shoulder or anything like that. So yeah, I've yeah. had some pretty interesting experiences for sure, but I never I was sort of in the rarity camp that I didn't have. I mean, maybe there's a few times when I was a kid that something weird happened, but the, the, nothing that I could tell was a direct influence. Okay, I was just sort of always fascinated pretty early on by just the whole idea that, you know, I used to hear like adults talk kind of hush hush about weird stuff happening. And mm-hmm. I can just just right when I heard that, I was what? Like, you know, <laughs> this is something this is something I need to chase. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's sort of my background in it. And yeah. I've had some weird experiences, but I have theories about those weird experiences. And, you know, I'm not sure it was demonic or not. At the time, I might have thought it was, but there's so many different variables in these yeah. experiences that it's, I mean, that's sort of the nature of the beast, right? Is that once you think you get to a point where you understand it, then some other data will come through that will sort of turn your theory upside down. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to pin down and, you know, that's what makes it interesting and frustrating at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I have one or two stories I'll share later on. Not, not yet. We'll hold okay. off. On, we'll hold off on those. <laughs> and then uh, Lorraine Warren was uh, claimed to be a clairvoyant, right? So where she could actually more of an empath, right? Where she could feel things around her. Yeah. Right. That's just like a conduit, huh? Yeah, yeah. It being empathic, she's more open to feeling what's around her and the essences around her. And um, how far do you think her extent was in that? Um, I believe she calls herself like a light trance medium, and I believe what she means by that term is that she can feel and see things and sort of take on the experience to a degree, but not where like you're a full trance medium where you're sort of like basically taken over and you're a different thing for a while. Whereas Lorraine Warren, I think would maintain her identity as a Lorraine Warren while getting the emotional visual experience of whatever she claimed was there. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and of course, the two of them, you know, uh, let me see who's got married. Yeah, got married in 1945. So they would, they were together for a very long time. Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, they started the Institute, the uh, what, N- NESPR, right? Right. Which is still in operation. Yep. I think her. Uh, is it really? I think their nephew, Tony oh. Sparrow, runs that now. Yeah. In fact, in October, they're doing a. Uh, a uh, I don't know if you call it a conference or whatever. Uh, where was it at? I think it's in Connecticut. They're doing a, a conference up there in October. Yeah. In October. So. Well, yeah, you're just you're close enough just to go. <laughs> I, I could. Was you it, should. It was it eight hours? Right? You're gonna have to go and then report back to me what you what you thought. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Just do a Bible over brews trip up there. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it My. would be cool. I could try. My October is so booked right now. It's my brother's wedding, and then there's another Muay Thai. Uh, for those who don't know, I, I both train, fight Muay Thai, and I have uh, another tournament coming up, hopefully, in uh, in October. 
Um, just brought my student back. Um, he didn't win, but he made it all the way through the fight, lost to the champ, so that was good. And uh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, he lost. He lost to the champ. There's a lot of people and, there, Aaron. And it was a 900 man Muay Thai tournament. Nine, actually, it's wow, closer to 950. That's a win. I mean, that's, that's a win for you, <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah. So it was yeah, 900 man plus tournament. Well, congrats to you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And then my, yeah, my, then my yeah, thank you. And my previous one, he actually took the title for his for his weight class. So. Yeah, so hopefully going back, I have three more students that want to fight in the next one. So remind me never to pick a fight with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm it's kidding. it's just a fun sport. That's all. It's just a fun sport. <laughs> You're too humble. Aaron's a beast, man. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, sir. So Bryson, I got a question for you. Okay. Was there any particular moment or some type of trigger that really led you, like? Yeah, I'm going all the way. I'm going to research this, and I need to find out more. Was there that moment ever for you, or was it accumulative? Uh, it was pretty. I mean, it was pretty early on. I mean, I was reading a lot of parapsychology books in the beginning, and I was pretty hooked pretty fast. Okay. And I've always been a big reader, so once I had sort of wrapped my head around the idea that people were experiencing stuff like that, you know, kind of like people tell you that stuff's not real. And then behind closed doors, there's whispers that, Oh, this happened. We don't tell the kids that kind of thing. <laughs> I was pretty into it after that. And like I said, I was always a big reader. So I was just at the library, like anything I could find paranormal parapsychology, anything like that. <clears throat> I would just devour it. And one of the weird things about getting into this is you sort of have this like synchronicity stuff start happening mm. where now that you're studying it, you'll start, people will start telling you stories about it. And then all these stories will start to surface and then you're just, you know, led along. And before you know it, you know, you're sneaking into graveyards with, you know, recorders and cameras and stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. to see if you can capture it. Yeah. Again, I can relate to that. For sure. Corroborating stories we'll get to in just a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's it's just so you're either going to be totally freaked out by it or you're going to be like intrigued to the point where, you know, it becomes some kind of obsession. Mm. Yes. Um, and I, from what I understand, the Warrens actually wanted to make their uh, living as artists, right? And then. Right. So. Um, which I actually haven't seen a lot of their artwork, so I don't know if it's more impressionist or. Well, I don't think Ed was ever going to win an art competition. <laughs> Ouch! So, not, even, not even for the nun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for the nun, but if you look at his stuff, it's—I don't know what to call it—very basic, mm. and I—I I think I understand why he chose to be a ghost hunter <laughs> as opposed to an artist. Okay. But um, yeah, that's from what I understand. Wasn't it? Wasn't he drawing the the haunted houses that he would later go? Right, he would go around, <laughs> basically all over New England, as far as I know. And basic, he would sit outside and start painting the house. And his wife Lorraine would go up and sort of charm the people into letting them come in. And base, you know, they would just ask him about the haunting and whatnot, and. I guess they would just write this stuff down and eventually they come to a point where, 
you know, through their Catholic faith and whatnot, that they would try to solve their mysteries. Okay. Yeah, that's that's kind of how how I heard it too. Yeah. And their their institute was actually founded in 1952, which is the same year my mother was born. Is there a connection? There is. See these, the synchronicities. <laughs> the synchronicities are already starting up. <laughs> so one of the things that always baffled me though about the Warrens in all the movies was the relationship to the Catholic Church. Yeah. Because they were not and I'm not Catholic by the way, exorcists. No. Right? They were not official no. church exorcists. And those I thought were a very privileged, very privy, very secret group of people, right? Well and a lot of them still are. Right. So uh, I, I never understood the relationship and like how the Catholic Church would just be like, hey, we think you should do it. You should do it and pretty much take the reins. So how much of that is Hollywood in the movies and how much of that is truth? Well, I know he didn't do any exorcisms. And over and over again, he insisted that he couldn't do exorcisms. But I'm pretty sure he did, though. Didn't he in the movies? He did in the movie. <laughs> Bryson, now, go ahead. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Well, this is sort of where the like part of the mystery is, is that Ed Warren always claimed that he was officially recognized by the Vatican mm. to investigate demonic cases. Okay. Now, as far as I can tell, I cannot find that backed up by anything. Mm. It appears, as is usual with the Warrens, that the only people really claiming this is the Warrens. <laughs> now... You know, this is where it becomes like which is real and which is fantasy. Right. Because in the movie, which Lorraine Warren claims is accurate, at least to an extent, of course, things are exaggerated. All that's basically how it happened. But in the books, they'll make claims that they weren't actually licensed to do any of that. But I've also read things where Ed claimed that he had performed an exorcism before. But it was like hush hush so we're you know we're what's real <laughs> yeah good question yeah. but at the same time that on the flip side of that there was never any from the catholic church like a, a disassociation from the warrens was there anything official there's slight ones there's when we if we get into the uh the uh devil in connecticut case the devil mm-hmm. made me do it uh how this works out is that the family experiences of, I forget where it actually happens in the case, but at some point their pastor tells them that they need to contact the Warrens in order to investigate their son being possessed and all this. Mm. And then what happens is, is they do go to the bishop and he does authorize priests to go investigate. Mm-hmm. But the only real quote I can find from the priest, now let me see here if I can find it. It's like Francis Vilgaric or something. Well, the only real quote I can find from Francis Vilgaric is that he can't, he, his quote is, he could never tell if the Warrens uh, were sincere, but gullible, or they were just in it for the money. Mm. So... The investigating priest on this case seems to be kind of throwing them under the bus. Gotcha. And part of it is that the Warrens claimed that the Catholic Church authorized the exorcism, but the Catholic Church denies that. 
And the bishop claims that there was never, the, the priests never deduced that they had to have an exorcism, that it was mental illness. Ouch. Okay. Um, that's so, that's an ouchie right there. <laughs> yeah. See, it's just like, because exorcists- at the same time, Arnie Johnson, the guy who killed the guy, was Arnie Johnson killed that the Bono guy. And then uh, he still claims to this day that he was possessed. So okay. he's still backing up the Warren story. But Carl Glatzel and David Glatzel, who was the boy who's possessed in the movie, and his older brother, both claim that he was just mentally ill. And uh, it was all a money-making scheme by the Warrens. So even within the family, you have two sides. Okay. Fascinating. So yeah. the weeds thicken. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which family members telling the truth? Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. What is it true that, because uh, I, I saw this uh, claim that uh, Lauren Warren actually had her abilities attested by a university. Is that true or not? Uh, do you know what kind of tests they they did? I mean, it says uh, as the Warrens began taking on bigger and bigger cases, skepticism about the couple grew. To quiet critics, Lorraine agreed to be tested by Dr. Thelma Moss, an actress turned psychologist and parapsychologist, working in UCLA lab studying things like Curlian photography. She found that Lorraine's clairvoyance was far above average, according to the demonologist in the book. No so, idea. So again, it's 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 a claim in the book. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And here we go. You know, like we I need to do more research on the on the person that claims that she passed the tests and something tells me we're going to find that it was all good but then Lorraine Warren didn't give her the money or something and now she's now she's anti Lorraine Warren. See, it's always like there's money involved. Okay. And Everyone comes out trying to sue everybody. Now you mentioned money, but is it true that they didn't charge for their? They didn't charge for their investigations, but they're definitely making money off the books, and they're definitely making money off the deals. And I know that they lectured all the time. Okay. Gotcha. And you know, Amityville Horror was huge. Yeah. So still is. You know, you know, maybe they didn't make any money off the investigations, but you know, like. Some of the stuff that I found out being involved with some of, I was never involved with the Warrens particularly, but I did have like mentorship from John Zaffis. Okay. Have you ever seen The Haunted Collector? Uh, references to it, I didn't go in, in, okay, in depth yeah. though. Yeah, John yeah. Zaffis is their nephew and he's just yeah. the nicest guy ever. And I never throw the guy under the bus. He was great to me when I was a young kid trying to do research and stuff even he had a problem with Lorraine Warren at one time. Mm. At one point in time, Lorraine Warren had on her website that she was warning Warren fans that there was people going around claiming to be trained by the Warrens that weren't really trained by the Warrens, including John Zaffis. And this is after Ed was basically, you know, incapacitated. So he could never like have a say in it. But basically, as soon as that happens, Lorraine Warren goes after everybody that was ah. trained by Ed 
and starts saying stuff like they were, you know, we never investigated with them. We never trained them. We never had an association with them. The, the loop I originally got in this whole web through a uh, online radio show called the Lou Gentilly show. Okay. And his whole claim to fame was that he was trained by Ed Warren and he was a demonologist, et cetera, et cetera. And they had this big thing called Amityville Horror Week one year. And George Lutz came out of the woodwork. He was on that and he hadn't been heard from in years. And Lorraine Warren was on there and he received a, a letter from Butch DeFeo, the mur- the original murderer in the Amityville case. Well, wow. he's still alive. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there you go. There's your evidence right there. Somehow <laughs> that guy's still kicking. But they had that show on. And I remember they kept emphasizing this thing where they were going to reveal these deep, dark secrets about the Amityville case because it was the 20th anniversary or something, 50th anniversary, something like that, anniversary of Amityville. And this is where I started to first kind of be like, what? Like, what is that about? And there was some claim made on the show that he had agreed to speak about it because someone was going to pay him like 10 grand to talk about it. But he like sort of veiled it with, well, he thinks it's finally time for the truth to come out, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. So question on that then. So do you see Ed Warren as being the more honest investigator as opposed to his wife, Lorraine? I feel like I do have this strange feeling that somehow Lorraine is the mastermind. Mm. And I say that because I feel like everybody that I personally interacted with, even if they thought they were charlatans, they always sort of had a respect for Ed, but they always came down to Lorraine was in it about the money. And it kind of, it's kind of the bad part of it because these people that I would talk to that actually investigated with the Warrens, their whole claim was that they would be investigating in like a sister group of the Warrens. And what they would do is they'd investigate the case. And then if they thought it was worthy, they'd send it to the Warrens. Hmm. And essentially the first one, which I'm not going to reveal a name because the Warrens are, the Warrenites are insane and they'll just go after these people if I reveal the name. Okay. But the lady I talked to, she was actually a social worker for a living and she was doing a case for the Warrens. And essentially what her theory was, is that this was all a mask for like sexual and drug abuse in the home. Okay. And essentially what happened is they presented this to the Warrens. Lorraine shows up, talks to the people for an hour and she's like demons. Why? Because she felt them there and she had a psychic link with them. And now the whole process of actually helping the family maybe uncover some criminal behavior going on has now been diverted. Mm. And the point is, is that it's demons now. And she got so fed up with it. She, she just left the group entirely and never did it anymore. Huh. That's interesting. Because, you know, she just became a non-believer after she was in the mix of it and saw how Mm. they were doing investigations and all that. And then another guy 
That's I knew that investigated for the Warrens basically said the same thing, but it was that they, they had concluded that the investigation was a hoax and they thought it was something to do with a child and he was having some kind of poltergeist activity, but the investigation, at least as far as they were concerned, revealed that it was just the kid messing with the parents. Okay. And so, but there was, I, and I don't remember cause it's been like years and years ago, but there was some kind of thing about a little creature that would like point at the boy and tell him he's going to die and all that, you know, the typical. Yeah. And, uh, so they concluded it was a hoax, but they brought it to the Warrens and they were surprised to see that Lorraine Warren showed up and basically kicked them all out. Mm-hmm. And months later, they start, they heard again about the case and how it was like this great demon infestation. And, you know, and so it just, it's just like that all the time. Okay. And wow. so, so and it, it's a pattern of this kind of, uh, uh, the investigators go in and they're like, no, there is something here or something else. And then Lorraine goes in and is like, aha. There's a story, <laughs> right? Like there's there's a story I can do and write a book about. It. So it sounds like when Ed was healthy, there was maybe more of a line to truth. I feel like there was. And I still think it's sort of a money-making thing. But it seems like there's a divide between when Ed goes down before I feel like the cases they're investigating, there is something there. There is weird activity going on that's legit, but then they blow it up and we're going to make a movie. We're going to do this. And then after Ed goes down, it just feels like they don't even care anymore. Hmm. (laughs) You know, like if the story's good, we're going to go in there and (laughs) try to, milk it for all it's worth we're gonna touch a, f- a few of those cases because that is really interesting that it's is. really interesting i thought their marriage so, was too good to be true throughout all the movies I'm like, right nobody loves each other through all that crazy no. oh my god get it <laughs> get, get a load of this um i think i sent this into the the group at one point in time but uh did you guys read the article about the uh the woman that's come out and said that she was a uh she was an underage uh, oh, no. paramour of Ed Warren. Mm. Yeah, supposedly. And now I think I don't know where the case has gone. I don't know if it was proven, I mean, disproven. or That doesn't mean ghost lover, right? Uh, this just means, yeah, we wish. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, some woman, what's her name? Judy something. Not Judy Warren, the daughter, but it's a different one. And she claims that she was basically adopted into the Warren's household as a mistress of Ed Warren. And Lorraine Warren knew about it the whole time. Hmm. And basically Lorraine's point of view was that they can't tarnish the perfect couple, Catholic couple image. So she was just going to be okay with it because, you know, she's still making money. So, so you're, what you're saying is they're like the Catholic version of Jerry Falwell. I think. <laughs> nice. I think that's a, nice. might be might be a really good comparison. <laughs> Had to throw the evangelicals under the bus there, Aaron. Thank you. I'm just being fair. <laughs> I'm just being fair. Look, if I was the woman in that case, I'd be like, well, of course it's a demon. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's all you're missing from the Jerry Falwell case is like, well, actually, it was all brought on by a Ouija board. 
<laughs> I, I need all these private jets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't know where that has ever gone, if anybody's won any money or done anything with that. But, I mean, That's again, yeah. it's just the same kind of stuff all the time. And, you know, at one point in time, I was a big Warrens fan, and I thought mm. maybe this is like the devil fighting back and all this Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You I, hope. Could, I you didn't want to believe it. Right. Of course, right. the yeah. enemy coming against them. Right. And then and eventually it just became so often that it was like, well, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. So what you're saying is they would not be official assessors. No, <laughs> no, but is that's that, the that's is that what's Catholic so weird terminology. So yes, so okay. an, an assessor is an actual position in the, in the Catholic Church, and what an assessor does is is they assess whether or not there is an actual demonic manifestation or possession or miracle, right? So mm-hmm. they do various things. It's an actual position in the church which i've always respected about the catholic yeah. church is that there's a process <laughs> right. most claims are rejected most are yeah and so i've always yeah. appreciated about that that's what makes this ed and lorraine warren um kind of interesting because there's like it still seems like there's a lot of gray area within the relationship no official like those people are hoaxes they right. have nothing to do with the catholic church yeah <laughs> yeah and i i do think there's a reason for that mm. now if you read the Warrens' books, they almost always use this guy named Bishop Robert McKenna. Mm-hmm. And if you do a little digging into Robert McKenna, and to put this in a little bit of context, this is the 70s, so this is sort of like the wake of Vatican II. Right. And you also have like all the countercultural stuff going on in the 60s and 70s. And Robert McKenna is a traditionalist uh, Catholic priest. I guess he's a bishop. And um, he was actually made a bishop by, what is his name? Um, Well, it's like French. Michel Louise Gerard de la Rey. And if you look him up, he's actually excommunicated from the church because of his, you know, traditionalist views. Okay. And Robert McKenna, you can find some writing from him, and he's very anti-Vatican II. Like everything that's going wrong with the world is Vatican II. So at that point, would he be like Mm -hmm. a a set of Vaticanist? I think it's the other one, the set of Privationist. Oh, okay. So. He still, they still acknowledge the Pope, but they think he's corrupt because the Vatican too. Okay. Either way, you can't it's, trust the French. Yeah. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So, like, I, I kind of googled it when you like mentioned it the last time. It's like something like there is a Pope, but he can't actually do anything until uh, Vatican II is fixed. So, yes. yeah. So, wow. like, like a set of Vaticanists, for example, believes that the last great Pope was Pope Pius the Twelfth, right? They believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the set of Provisionists, it's just corrupt until whenever. Right. <laughs> so, which is true as the non-Catholic here. Which oh is no, no, I I love Pope Francis. I think he's awesome. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the guy. I, I think that he's doing more good than, you know, 90% of our leaders out there. Okay. Yeah, I think he's awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong. The media hates him, 
because you can tell by the quotes, but I think he's great. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Okay. But so now you've got this weird element to it where I think what the Warrens are doing when they're saying they have Catholic approval, a lot of times is that it's through this branch, not through like the official Roman Catholic church. Gotcha. And because you'll run into this constantly with the Warrens where they'll be like, like, for example, the demon murder case, the devil made me do it. They're claiming that there's like six priests there. They're all completely convinced the guy's possessed. But the officially sanctioned investigation, they're not even convinced in the slightest. So I have to sort of assume that there is some kind of almost ideological statement being made here. Cause if you read the Warren's books, there's a, there's a big theme about how hard it is to get an exorcism, but it's not, it's not always in a, Oh, this is a good thing. Frame of mind. It's in this terrible bureaucracy is preventing these people from getting help. And I really think that's sort of a big key of the puzzle where the church is in the gray area is because um, some of them are for it and some of them are against it. It's almost like they feel the need to scare everyone and drive people back into traditional belief systems mm. is a greater a greater thing to do than telling the story 100% truthfully. Like the tradies. Interesting. <laughs> Right. It's, you know, it's conversion by like a form of deception or something. Yeah. And they seem to be okay with that, which I guess you could make an argument for that in some way. But yeah, for, for the, our audience that doesn't know, the, uh, the Tratties, quote unquote, traditionalist uh, Catholics are kind of like the Anabaptists of the, you know, evangelical world. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> and so. Yeah, so I think with the church approval thing, I think they are getting church approval. It's just not what you'd regularly classify as church approval. I totally, it is. I would say that, yeah, because I do not condone anything Falwell or any of you. Uh, it's kind of like, like it's, that would do. It's kind of like an illicit approval rather than illicit approval in some sense. Right, mm -hmm. and I, I guess that's still legit because I think. I think even if you're an excommunicated, now I could be wrong, but I think if you're an excommunicated bishop, you can still bestow the bishopric on someone. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you Apost can. Yeah. Apostolic, I, like, apostolic I, possession stuff kind of still works. It's just illicit. So even if this uh, bishop isn't going through exactly the same sort of proper channels, mm. other things are still technically valid but uh right i think this is how the yeah. anglicans can make arguments for apostolic suggest suggest their succession right yeah it's it's being out of communion however it doesn't mean that your, your apostolic uh, historicity is negated right right yeah. right 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 yeah so wow yeah but for the non-catholic you know through the conjuring and through hollywood's filter on the conjuring do you feel like overall I feel as the non-Catholic here, it's kind of pushed people like, hey, this is actually interesting what the Catholics do. Do you feel like it's hurt true 
Catholicism in a sense? Or do you feel like it, it brings that interest of people who are on the outside? Like, hey, maybe you should look into this. This is probably the justification for letting them get away with it. You know, because so like you said, um, I don't know. That's a tough question. I have to think it over for a it, while. It, but. It, it's almost a two-edged sword because it's like one yeah, of those okay. where it's like, yeah, it, it does bring them in, but it may give them a slight uh, false dichotomy of what is actually being done. Mm, like, so. the, like the non-believer in the Protestant side, seeing fall whale, thinking that's what Christianity is. <laughs> there, there is a, a slight, you know, again, uh, facade to it because there is a process inside the, uh, the, the Catholic Church to guide you through these things and these kind of th- make it look like you can get around that if you approach it the right way. So it's it's almost like a like 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 a a facade. So it, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it, it's a two edged sword because it's it does pique people's interest, but at the same time, it kind of might give them a false hope of what can be done outside of the church, but with the church. Mm, interesting. It, it kind of yeah. reminds me. It kind of reminds me of sort of the. The backfire of conversion by the sword, where you're going in and converting people, you know, convert or die. But when you're converting or dying, like you're implanting rebellion. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in one way, it's like, okay, well, at least we at least we got some people to convert. But, you know, that that sort of anti-Catholicism has been planted. Right. Mm. Because they're seeing it's like an invader. And this is like you know, conversion by deception. Okay. And if you're the type of person that is going to question things, like you're eventually just going to be like, well, I mean, all my faith is based on this giant lie. And you're going to associate that lie with the Catholic church, not with the Warrens, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Just take my head off. But yeah, I I agree. (laughs) A lot of people, when they feel that cold steel on their neck, oh, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Man, that's fascinating. Wow. Uh Well, let's take a real brief moment for our sponsors. Hey, it's Gumby here from Bible Over Brews. Are you looking to get some editing done in your podcast? Maybe you don't have the hours or time it takes to edit your content, but you still need to get it done. Maybe you need a customized track or a song for your podcast or your next project without having to worry about copyright issues. Well, look no further than soulworkmusic.com, where this footwork is done for you. I'll get that editing post-production work done right for you or create you that customized song that fits your project or podcast to help support your life's work. If this sounds like what you need, reach out to me at soulworkmusic.com. Again, at soulworkmusic.com. And remember, there's nothing taboo over brew. Coming at you now, we've got Stone Buena Visa. Stone Buena Visa, Salt and Lime Lago, was born in Southern California, which is vibrantly influenced by our neighbors to the south. SoCal's warm weather lends itself to outdoor activities year-round, from surfing our coast to snowboarding and biking in the mountains, off-roading through deserted lands, or boating and fishing in our lakes and rivers. This Baja-inspired lager is the perfect companion. Brewed with just the right amount of lime and sea salt is everything a lager should be crisp refreshing 
and full of flavor. The name is pretty simple. We took Buena for good and Visa from Cerveza because we've always believed good beer is an important part of life. This is an ABV of 4.7. And by the way, both our beers tonight are part of the Independent Brewers Association. Mm-hmm. Got no problem with that thinking. Are you going to post a picture of these uh, these cans online? Oh, you know I am. Oh, my gosh. You're so cool. Man. <laughs> Those so, are some cool-looking cans. It is. For anybody who can't see them, these are definitely inspired by uh, Dea de los Muertos. <laughs> so cool. So this one's not quite as heady. It, it It is heady, but not quite as heady as our previous one. Very light flavor. It has a, uh, a nice yellow ambiance when I look through it. Slightly hazy, not too bad. It has a very, very light aroma to it. Mm. As Lopez tradition will hold. I take the first <laughs> sip out of the can. <laughs> I can actually smell just, just a slight tinge of lemon peel. I like that. Oh, wow. That's crisp. Like, it's really crisp. This... This tastes like I just cracked something open sitting on a beach. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> With Snoop Dogg by your side. That's right. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's good. This tastes to me like how Corona should taste like. But you're always disappointed when you drink it. <laughs> At least I am. It's so true. <laughs> well, Corona's really only good if it's got a lime stuck in it. So. <laughs> yeah. The fifth wow, Corona is like the best Corona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Although, I will say it's a really good beer for those people who are gluten intolerant. So, oh. word to the wise out there, if you have a gluten intolerance, mm-hmm. that is your beer. Right. So I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. See, you see dead people? <laughs> <laughs> we are full of useless information. <laughs> 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 so diving back into uh the warrens um there is their cases one of course is annabelle her movies are quite famous yeah so um to uh jump in here and i quote in a locked glass box in the occult museum there's a raggedy and doll named annabelle with a positively do not open warning sign on it. The Dow may not look menacing, but of all items in the occult museum, that Dow is what I'd most be frightened of, said Tony Sparrow, the Warren's son-in-law. According to the Warren's report, a 28-year-old nurse who received the Dow as a gift in 1968 noticed that it started to change. Then she and her roommates started finding parchment paper with written messages saying things like, help me, help us. As if it wasn't strange enough, the girls claimed that they didn't even have parchment paper in their house. Next, the doll started showing up in different rooms and leaking blood. Unsure of what to do, the two women turned to a medium who said the doll was being occupied by the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle Higgins. That's when Ed and Lorraine Warren took an interest in the case and contacted the women. After evaluating the doll, they came to the immediate conclusion that the doll itself was not in fact possessed, but manipulated by an inhuman presence. 
According to the Warrens, Annabelle, the doll continued to move around their house on her own, too. So the locked in the glass cabinet and sealed it with a binding prayer. But even now, visitors to the Warrens Museum say Annabelle continues to cause mischief and may even look at revenge on her skeptics. One couple of non-believers reportedly got to a motorcycle accident soon after visiting the museum, with the survivors saying that they had been laughing about Annabelle just before the crash. Dum, dum, dum. Terrifying. <laughs> Where's George at? <laughs> Horror. So thought process on that. What do you think? Uh, I'm vaguely familiar with this case. Uh, it's been a while since I've read about it, but I guess my main question would be is do we have any names of the people that experienced this? And if we ever asked them what they thought about it outside of the Warren's tale, mm. did you, did you uncover any, I mean, you did some research on so, Annabelle. Did you uncover anything like that? There was a priest involved and unfortunately I forgot to pull his name. There was a priest involved who, uh, who, who, supposedly picked the dowel up. And this is actually in The Demonologist, the book by Ed Warren. Picked the dowel up and said, Annabelle, you have no power, and threw her back down. And then he later almost got killed in a car accident on the way home. Yeah, don't they so, depict that in the movie? Yeah, to an extent they Somewhat, do, yeah. 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 So the doll itself isn't possessed. It's a conduit. It's a conduit mm. to possess another person? Well... Ultimately, every malevolent spirit wants to possess a person. So I, I, I don't say demon because who knows, there could be things outside you know, <clears throat> demons. But any malevolent spirit, uh, their ultimate goal is to uh, you know, inhabit humans. Okay. So what is your thoughts on conduits versus um, a possessed owl? Uh, I would agree with, I kind of, this is probably the thing about the Warrens is that a lot of their sort of ideas on how things work, I do sort of agree with. Okay. And I, I would agree with them in the capacity that in this particular instance, it seems like, you know, it's being manipulated by an outside force to appear as if it's possessed. I mean, okay. that's kind of what I got from the story, at least that what they're being, what they've conveyed. Right. Um, I'm not sure. And it, one of the things I find fascinating about the whole topic of, you know, human effigies mm -hmm. being possessed by something is this, I mean, this is totally in the Old Testament worldview, right? Like it it's is. their whole, it's their whole concept of idols. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm thinking about when I'm hearing this. I'm thinking. Go, Zach. Yeah, go. This, go, Zach. Go. There's this idea that you you take this uh, piece of statuary or object and then you do a ritual to sort of get a uh, deity or a greater spirit to latch onto it. And it acts as sort of like a satellite of this being. It can see through its, uh, its eyes or... Uh, influence the immediate location around it. Hmm. Yeah, because the yeah. the idol itself is yeah, it's it's just material. 
It's the yeah. it's the spirit that's called into it which gives it its livelihood. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So to me that I mean, theoretically, if you take the the Bible sort of ancient Near Eastern context seriously, that this is entirely possible. Okay. And I don't have a big problem with that. Um, I think it's pretty likely. Yeah. Especially, you know, if I understand, if I remember the Warren stories correctly, it sort of starts, almost starts out like they're giving um, too much attention to the doll. Yes, I agree. And they're sort of imagining that it's an actual person. And so, you know, I mean, that's like a cultic setup perfectly. You know, you have like an effigy. Everyone thinks it's real. They're starting to talk to it. And then it sort of like starts to play the part. Mm. So that's a, it's a, exactly how it's depicted inside the book, The Demonologist. Is That's the first thing he says is that you gave this thing way too much attention. He's like, you called this thing into existence, right? So, yeah. And that really, you know, I have one of my big topics that, I like to think about and research within the ghost hunting thing is how much the investigators are influencing what's going on. Yeah. Because time and again, part of my whole apparatus of how I like to study it was that I would investigate things on my own and then I would investigate things with a group. And a lot of times when I investigated things by myself, I would experience things on occasion but it's very rare. But as soon as you go into an environment where everyone like believes in it already mm-hmm. and they start, everyone starts feeding off of each other. In my experience, that can actually produce phenomena. Okay. Yeah. Where yeah. you might not have experienced anything before, but as soon as you have five people like, Oh, the doll's alive. And it's, you know, <laughs> uncle Jerry from four generations ago. And they all believe it's Uncle Jerry. Mm. Like it starts to Uncle Jerry starts to appear or something. Well, isn't that kind of like a Republican convention? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd get a kick out of there. <laughs> so, I'm just joking. I'm not saying I'm left or right or anything. <laughs> you never know. There might be consequences of that. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> it's kind of funny because isn't that exactly how the story of uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods is? Where it's I think like, so. yeah, where it's like you have the old gods and then you have the new gods, but all of the gods are called forth because of the belief in what would be a god, and they have no power until the belief sets in, and then it manifests as a god. Yeah, there's a there's a mm. now in parapsychology, you always got to wonder because it's it's scientific in a way, but. I mean, it's probably the closest to scientific research you can get within the paranormal field. But there's an old uh, experiment they did, and I think it was in Canada. Okay. And uh, uh, it's called the Philip experiment. And essentially what they did is that they took a bunch of people and they put them around a table. And I think they're playing Ouija board. They're doing table tifting and stuff. And but what happened is that the experimenters create the narrative of the haunting and sort of seed it into the participants. And it's a completely made up story. So they invent some guy named Philip. They create a history, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the participants 
start to like conjure a spirit named Philip. And he's, he's everything he's saying is coinciding with what the experimenters fed the participants. And, you know, like, what do you do with that information? Is that, is that the participants creating the phenomena Mm -hmm. or is that something acting like Philip or, you know? Yeah. 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 It's fascinating because it does. That's understanding how the group, the group thinks. Yeah. And being able to manipulate it. That's Edward Bernays. It's fascinating that it, it actually touches base with so much of what we understand in pop culture with the, the quote unquote new gods, right? The new gods came to be because we created them, right? And we right, and yeah. we believe in them, and our belief in them is what made them gods. And right? as a so. group, we do believe in those, whether it's positive or, in this case, Annabelle, negative. You know, I mean, mm. pick any baseball team of your professional sport of your liking, right? <laughs> you go to yeah. the stadium, and mm. everybody acts in accordance with one each other. Yeah. It's... It's just how, it's, and you see the superstition in the players. Whether, yes, you know exactly right. So yeah. in this case, in Annabelle, why couldn't the opposite hold true? So I'm absolutely, asking. yeah, I know, okay. I agree, I agree. So moving yeah. over to the Perrin family. Okay, I did some research on this one. Yeah, me too. It, and this one actually fascinates me. This one, and, and for those who don't know, the Perrin family would be. Your favorite one, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so go ahead. Uh, background on the Perrin family. Okay. Um, basically, the Perrin family, I forget what they're in Rhode Island, I believe. And they live, they live in this farmhouse. Uh, there is sort of this mythology in it about Bathsheba, Bathsheba Sherman. And basically the entire haunting, not the entire haunting, but it grows into that where Bathsheba Sherman is tormenting the family. And there's a myth about how she used to be this witch and she murdered her infant with a needle, with a knitting needle, and then went into the backyard and hung herself. And then this is the catalyst for the conjuring and the stuff the family went through. Yes. Now what I did find out, so you can actually find uh, Andrea Perrin's uh, interview on YouTube, uh, a modern one, where because she, uh, she's the oldest daughter. Andrea Perrin is the oldest daughter. Um, her story is fascinating. She said James Wan, apparently he she did work with him. Uh, she said James Wan, she said, God love him, he played it down. She said it was far hmm. more violent than what he depicts. Really? Yeah. She wow. she said that he was aiming for a PG thirteen rating, even though they wouldn't let him get away with it. Um, and uh, she said so. He actually toned everything down. It was actually far, far more violent. In fact, the first dog was not the one in the movie. The first dog was actually named Bathsheba. <laughs> okay. And. Uh, <laughs> She purposely did not put that in the book. She said, I didn't want to think that we were a bunch of dog killers. She said, I did not include it. She said, 5% of our story I left out of the book because it was so personal. I have no idea how people found out about the first dog. So it's, it's kind of fascinating that hmm. it, it, hmm. somehow it leaked out. Probably, probably her publisher. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, but uh, 
But she said that it was actually far more violent than what they show in the movie. Mm-hmm. She said what they show in the in the movie was actually a very very tamed down. Um, and she goes on to describe how uh, this this the essence of this being would actually come and manifest itself to her. Um, and it was not the witch that hung herself. It was actually a different woman, the, the one right after that. I forget her name, but it's, it's the one that owned the house right after the oh, witch. She, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, she hung herself in the barn afterwards. Oh. The witch didn't. It was actually, the, the story was that it's the witch. But it was actually... Oh, okay. Yeah, it was but interesting. It, I didn't know that. Yeah, but that being said, what influenced her to hang herself? Join us in part two for the rest of the conversation.